Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 1, Chapter 9 of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. Translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 1, Chapter 9. Often when Charles was out, she took out from the cupboard between the folds of the linen where she had left it the green silk cigar case. She looked at it, opened it, and even smelt the odour of the lining, a mixture of verbena and tobacco. Whose was it? The Viscount's? Perhaps it was a present from his mistress. It had been embroidered on some rosewood frame, a pretty little thing, hidden from all eyes that had occupied many hours and over which had fallen the soft curls of the pensive worker. A breath of love had passed over the stitches on the canvas. Each prick of the needle had fixed there a hope or a memory, and all those interwoven threads of silk were but the continuity of the same silent passion. And then one morning the Viscount had taken it away with him, of what had they spoken when it lay upon the wide-mantled chimneys between flower-vases and pompadour clocks? She was at Tostes. He was at Paris now, far away. What was this Paris like? What a vague name. She repeated it in a low voice, for the mere pleasure of it. It rang in her ears like a great cathedral bell. It shone before her eyes, even on the labels of her pomade-pots. At night, when the carriers passed under her windows in their cart singing the Marjolaine, she awoke and listened to the noise of the iron-bound wheels, which, as they gained the country road, were soon deadened by the soil. They will be there tomorrow, she said to herself. And she followed them, in thought, up and down the hills, traversing villages, gliding along the high roads by the light of the stars. At the end of some indefinite distance there was always a confused spot into which her dream died. She bought a plan of Paris, and with the tip of her finger on the map she walked about the capital. She went up the boulevards, stopping at every turning, between the lines of the streets, in front of the white squares that represented the houses. At last she would close the lids of her weary eyes and see in the darkness the gas-jets flaring in the wind and the steps of carriages lowered with much noise before the peristyles of theatres. She took in La Cobaye, a ladies' journal, and Sylph des Salons. She devoured without skipping a word all the accounts of first nights, races and soirees, took interest in the debut of a singer and the opening of a new shop. She knew the latest fashions, the addresses of the best tailors, the days of the Bois and the Opera. In Eugène Sue's she studied descriptions of furniture. She read Balzac and George Sand, seeking in them imaginary satisfaction for her own desires. Even at table she had her book by her, and turned over the pages while Charles ate and talked to her. The memory of the Viscount always returned as she read, between him and the imaginary personages she made comparisons. 
but the circle of which he was the centre gradually widened round him, and the aureole that he bore, fading from his form, broadened out beyond, lighting up her other dreams. Paris, more vague than the ocean, glimmered before Emma's eyes in an atmosphere of vermilion. The many lives that stirred amidst this tumult were, however, divided into parts, classed as distinct pictures. Emma perceived only two or three that hid from her all the rest, and in themselves represented all humanity. The world of ambassadors moved over polished floors in drawing-rooms lined with mirrors, round oval tables covered with velvet and gold-fringed cloths. There were dresses with trains, deep mysteries, anguish hidden beneath smiles. Then came the society of the duchesses. All were pale, all got up at four o'clock. The women, poor angels, wore English point on their petticoats, and the men, unappreciated geniuses under a frivolous outward seeming, rode horses to death at pleasure parties, spent the summer season at Baden, and towards the forties married heiresses. In the private rooms of restaurants, where one sups after midnight by the light of wax candles, laughed the motley crowd of men of letters and actresses. They were prodigal as kings, full of ideal, ambitious, fantastic frenzy. This was an existence outside that of all others, between heaven and earth, in the midst of storms, having something of the sublime. For the rest of the world it was lost, with no particular place, and as if non-existent. The nearer things were, moreover, the more her thoughts turned away from them. All her immediate surroundings, the wearisome country, the middle-class imbeciles, the mediocrity of existence, seemed to her exceptional, a peculiar chance that had caught hold of her while beyond stretched, as far as the eye could see, an immense land of joys and passions. She confused in her desire the sensualities of luxury with the delights of the heart, elegance of manners with delicacy of sentiment. Do not love, like Indian plants, need a special soil, a particular temperature? Signs by moonlight, long embraces, tears flowing over yielded hands, all the fevers of the flesh and the languors of tenderness could not be separated from the balconies of great castles full of indolence, from boudoirs with silken curtains and thick carpets, well-filled flower-stands, a bed on a raised dais, nor from the flashing of precious stones and the shoulder-knots of liveries. The lad from the posting-house who came to groom the mare every morning passed through the passage with his heavy wooden shoes. There were holes in his blouse, his feet were bare in list slippers, and this was the groom in knee-breeches with whom she had to be content. His work done, he did not come back again all day, for Charles on his return put up his horse himself, unsaddled him and put on the halter, while the servant girl brought a bundle of straw and threw it as best she could into the manger. To replace Natasi, who left Tosters shedding torrents of tears, Emma took into her service a young girl of fourteen, an orphan with a sweet face. She forbade her wearing cotton caps, taught her to address her in the third person, to bring a glass of water on a plate, to knock before coming into a room, to iron, starch, and to dress her, wanted to make a lady's maid of her. The new servant obeyed without a murmur, so as not to be sent away, 
and as Madame usually left the key in the sideboard, Felicite every evening took a small supply of sugar that she ate alone in her bed after she had said her prayers. Sometimes in the afternoon she went to chat with the postillions. Madame was in her room upstairs. She wore an open dressing gown that showed between the shawl facings of her bodice a pleated chamisette with three gold buttons. Her belt was a corded girdle with great tassels, and her small garnet-coloured slippers had a large knot of ribbon that fell over her instep. She had bought herself a blotting-book, writing-case, pen-holder, and envelopes, although she had no one to write to. She dusted her what-not, looked at herself in the glass, picked up a book, and then, dreaming between the lines, let it drop on her knees. She longed to travel, or to go back to her convent. She wished at the same time to die and to live in Paris. Giles, in snow and rain, trotted across country. He ate omelettes on farmhouse tables, poked his arm into damp beds, received the tepid spurt of bloodlettings in his face, listened to death rattles, examined basins, turned over a good deal of dirty linen. But every evening he found a blazing fire, his dinner ready, easy chairs, and a well-dressed woman, charming with an odour of freshness, though no one could say whence the perfume came, or if it were not her skin that made odorous her chemise. She charmed him by numerous attentions. Now it was some new way of arranging paper sconces for the candles, a flounce that she altered on her gown, or an extraordinary name for some very simple dish that the servant had spoilt, but the child swallowed with pleasure to the last mouthful. At Rouen she saw some ladies who wore a bunch of charms on the watch-chains. She bought some charms. She wanted for her mantelpiece two large blue glass vases, and some time after an ivory necessaire with a silver gilt thimble. The less Charles understood these refinements, the more they seduced him. They added something to the pleasure of the senses and to the comfort of his fireside. It was like a golden dust sanding all along the narrow path of his life. He was well, looked well. His reputation was firmly established. The country folk loved him because he was not proud. He petted the children, never went to the public house, and, moreover, his morals inspired confidence. He was specially successful with catars and chest complaints. Being much afraid of killing his patients, Charles in fact only prescribed sedatives from time to time, and emetic, a foot-bath, or leeches. It was not that he was afraid of surgery. He bled people copiously, like horses, and for the taking out of teeth he had the devil's own wrist. Finally, to keep up with the times, he took in La Ruche Medicale, a new journal whose prospectus had been sent him. He read it a little after dinner but in about five minutes the warmth of the room added to the effect of his dinner sent him to sleep, and he sat there, his chin on his two hands and his hair spreading like a mane to the foot of the lamp. Emma looked at him and shrugged her shoulders. Why, at least, was not her husband one of those men of taciturn passions who work at their books all night, and at last, when about sixty, the age of rheumatism sets in, wear a string of orders on their ill-fitting black coat. She could have wished this name of Bovary, which was hers, had been illustrious, to see it displayed at the booksellers, repeated in the newspapers, known to all France. 
But Charles had no ambition. An Ivato doctor whom he had lately met in consultation had somewhat humiliated him at the very bedside of the patient before the assembled relatives. When, in the evening, Charles told her this anecdote, Emma inveighed loudly against his colleague. Charles was much touched. He kissed her forehead with a tear in his eye. But she was angered with shame. She felt a wild desire to strike him. She went to open the window in the passage and breathed in the fresh air to calm herself. What a man! What a man! she said in a low voice, biting her lips. Besides, she was becoming more irritated with him. As he grew older, his manner grew heavier. At dessert, he cut the corks of the empty bottles. After eating, he cleaned his teeth with his tongue. In taking soup, he made a gurgling noise with every spoonful. And as he was getting fatter, the puffed-out cheeks seemed to push the eyes, always small, up to the temples. Sometimes Emma tucked the red borders of his undervest onto his waistcoat, rearranged his cravat, and threw away the dirty gloves he was going to put on. And this was not as he fancied for himself. It was for herself by a diffusion of egotism, of nervous irritation. Sometimes, too, she told him of what she had read, such as a passage in a novel, of a new play, or an anecdote of the upper ten that she had seen in a feuilleton. For, after all, Charles was something, an ever-open ear, an ever-ready approbation. She confided many things to her greyhound. She would have done so to the logs in the fireplace, or to the pendulum of the clock. At the bottom of her heart, however, she was waiting for something to happen. Like shipwrecked sailors, she turned despairing eyes upon the solitude of her life, seeking afar off some white sail in the mists of the horizon. She did not know what this chance would be, what wind would bring at her, towards what shore it would drive her, if it would be a shallop or a three-decker, laden with anguish or full of bliss to the portholes. But each morning as she awoke, she hoped it would come that day. She listened to every sound, sprang up with a start, wondered that it did not come. Then at sunset, always more saddened, she longed for the morrow. Spring came round. With the first warm weather, when the pear trees began to blossom, she suffered from dyspnea. From the beginning of July, she counted how many weeks there were to October, thinking that perhaps the Marquis d'Andevillers would give another ball at Vaubiessard. But all September passed without letters or visits. After the ennui of this disappointment, her heart once more remained empty, and then the same series of days recommenced. So now they would thus follow one another, always the same, immovable, and bringing nothing. Other lives, however flat, had at least the chance of some event. One adventure sometimes brought with it infinite consequences, and the scene changed. But nothing happened to her. God had willed it so. The future was a dark corridor, with its door at the end shut fast. She gave up music. What was the good of playing? Who would hear her? Since she could never, in a velvet gown with short sleeves, striking with her light fingers the ivory keys of an erade at a concert, feel the murmur of ecstasy envelop her like a breeze, it was not worth while boring herself with practising. 
Her drawing cardboard and her embroidery she left in the cupboard. What was the good? What was the good? Sewing irritated her. I have read everything, she said to herself, and she sat there making the tongs red-hot or looked at the rain falling. How sad she was on Sundays when vespers sounded. She listened with dull attention to each stroke of the cracked bell. A cat slowly walking over some roof put up his back in the pale rays of the sun. The wind on the high road blew up clouds of dust. Afar off a dog sometimes howled, and the bell, keeping time, continued its monotonous ringing that died away over the fields. But the people came out from church, the women in waxed clogs, the peasants in new blouses, the little bare-headed children skipping along in front of them, all were going home. And after nightfall, five or six men, always the same, stayed playing at corks in front of the large door of the inn. The winter was severe. The windows every morning were covered with rime, and the light shining through them, dim as through ground glass, sometimes did not change the whole day long. At four o'clock the lamp had to be lighted. On fine days she went down into the garden. The dew had left on the cabbages a silver lace with long transparent threads spreading from one to the other. No birds were to be heard. Everything seemed asleep the espalier covered with straw and the vine like a great sick serpent under the coping of the wall along which, on drawing near, one saw the many-footed wood-lice crawling. Under the spruce by the hedgerow, the curé in the three-cornered hat reading his breviary had lost his right foot, and the very plaster scaling off with the frost had left white scabs on his face. Then she went up again, shut her door, put on coals, and, fainting with the heat of the hearth, felt her boredom weigh more heavily than ever. She would have liked to go down and talk to the servant, but a sense of shame restrained her. Every day at the same time, the schoolmaster, in a black skull-cap, opened the shutters of his house, and the rural policeman, wearing his sabre over his blouse, passed by. Night and morning the post-horses, three by three, crossed the street to water at the pond. From time to time the bell of a public-house door rang, and when it was windy one could hear the little brass basins that served as signs for the hairdresser's shop creaking on their two rods. This shop had as decoration an old engraving of a fashion-plate stuck against a window-pane and the wax bust of a woman with yellow hair. He, too, the hairdresser, lamented his wasted calling, his hopeless future, and dreaming of some shop in a big town, at Rouen, for example, overlooking the harbour, near the theatre. He walked up and down all day from the Mary to the church, sombre and waiting for customers. When Madame Bovary looked up, she always saw him there, like a sentinel on duty, with his skull-cap over his ears and his vest of lasting. Sometimes in the afternoon, outside the window of her room, the head of a man appeared, a swarthy head with black whiskers, smiling slowly, with a broad, gentle smile that showed his white teeth. 
a waltz immediately began, and on the organ, in a little drawing-room, dancers the size of a finger, women in pink turbans, Tyroleans in jackets, monkeys in frock-coats, gentlemen in knee-breeches, turned and turned between the sofas, the consoles, multiplied in the bits of looking-glass held together at their corners by a piece of gold paper. The man turned his handle, looking to the right and left and up at the windows. Now and again, while he shot out a long squirt of brown saliva against the milestone, with his knee raised his instrument, whose hard straps tired his shoulder, and now, doleful and drawling, or gay and hurried, the music escaped from the box, droning through a curtain of pink taffeta under a brass claw in arabesque. There were airs played in other places at the theatres, sung in drawing-rooms, danced to at night under lighted lustres, echoes of the world that reached even to Emma. Endless sarabands ran through her head, and like an Indian dancing-girl on the flowers of a carpet, her thoughts leapt with the notes, swung from dream to dream, from sadness to sadness. When the man had caught some coppers in his cap, he drew down an old cover of blue cloth, hitched his organ onto his back, and went off with a heavy tread. She watched him going. But it was above all the meal-times that were unbearable to her in this small room on the ground floor, with its smoking stove, its creaking door, the walls that sweated, the damp flags. All the bitterness in life seemed served up on her plate, and with smoke of the boiled beef there rose from her secret soul whiffs of sickliness. Charles was a slow eater. She played with a few nuts, or, leaning on her elbow, amused herself with drawing lines along the oilcloth table cover with the point of her knife. She now let everything in her household take care of itself, and Madame Bovary Senior, when she came to spend part of Lent at Tostes, was much surprised at the change. She, who was formerly so careful, so dainty, now passed whole days without dressing, wore grey cotton stockings and burnt tallow candles. She kept saying they must be economical, since they were not rich, adding that she was very contented, very happy, that Tostas pleased her very much, with other speeches that closed the mouth of her mother-in-law. Besides, Emma no longer seemed inclined to follow her advice. Once even, Madame Bovary, having thought fit to maintain that mistresses ought to keep an eye on the religion of their servants, she had answered with so angry a look and so cold a smile that the good woman did not interfere again. Emma was growing difficult, capricious. She ordered dishes for herself, then she did not touch them. One day drank only pure milk, the next cups of tea by the dozen. Often she persisted in not going out, then, stifling, threw open the windows and put on light dresses. After she had well scolded her servant, she gave her presents, or sent her out to see neighbours, just as she sometimes threw beggars all the silver in her purse, although she was by no means tender-hearted or easily accessible to the feelings of others, like most country-bred people, who always retain in their souls something of the horny hardness of the paternal hands. Towards the end of February, old Rouault, in memory of his cure, himself brought his son-in-law a superb turkey and stayed three days at Tostas. Charles, being with his patients, Emma kept him company. He smoked in the room, 
spat on the fire dogs, talked farming, calves, cows, poultry and municipal council, so that when he left she closed the door on him with a feeling of satisfaction that surprised even herself. Moreover, she no longer concealed her contempt for anything or anybody, and at times she set herself to express singular opinions, finding fault with that which others approved, and approving things perverse and immoral, all of which made her husband open his eyes widely. Would this misery last forever? Would she never issue from it? Yet she was as good as all the women who were living happily. She had seen duchesses at Vaubiessard with clumsier waists and commoner ways, and she execrated the injustice of God. She leant her head against the walls to weep. She envied lives of stir, longed for masked balls, for violent pleasures, with all the wildness that she did not know, but that these must surely yield. She grew pale and suffered from palpitations of the heart. Charles prescribed valerian and camphor baths. Everything that was tried only seemed to irritate her the more. On certain days she chatted with feverish rapidity, and this over-excitement was suddenly followed by a state of torpor, in which she remained without speaking, without moving. What then revived her was pouring a bottle of eau de cologne over her arms. As she was continually complaining about tosters, Charles fancied that her illness was no doubt due to some local cause, and fixing on this idea, began to think seriously of setting up elsewhere. From that moment she drank vinegar, contracted a sharp little cough, and completely lost her appetite. It cost Charles much to give up tosters after living there four years, and when he was beginning to get on there. Yet, if it must be... He took her to Rouen to see his old master. It was a nervous complaint. Change of air was needed. After looking about him on this side and on that, Charles learnt that in the Neuchâtel arrondissement there was a considerable market town called Yonville-l'Abbaye, whose doctor, a Polish refugee, had decamped a week before. Then he wrote to the chemist of the place to ask the number of the population, the distance from the nearest doctor, what his predecessor had made a year, and so forth. And the answer being satisfactory, he made up his mind to move towards the spring, if Emma's health did not improve. One day, when, in view of her departure, she was tidying a drawer, something pricked her finger. It was a wire of her wedding bouquet. The orange blossoms were yellow with dust, and the silver-bordered satin ribbons frayed at the edges. She threw it into the fire. It flared up more quickly than dry straw. Then it was, like a red bush in the cinders, slowly devoured. She watched it burn. The little pasteboard berries burst, the wire twisted, the gold lace melted and the shriveled paper corollas fluttering like black butterflies at the back of the stove at last flew up the chimney. When they left Tostes at the month of March, Madame Bovary was pregnant. End of part one, chapter nine. Part two, chapter one of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert Translated by Eleanor Marks Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2. Chapter 1. 
Yonville l'Abbaye, so called from an old Capuchin abbey of which not even the ruins remain, is a market town twenty-four miles from Rouen, between the Abbeville and Beauvais roads, at the foot of a valley watered by the Rieur, a little river that runs into the Andelle after turning three water-mills near its mouth, where there are a few trout that the lads amuse themselves by fishing for on Sundays. We leave the high road at La Boissière and keep straight on to the top of the Lure Hill, whence the valley is seen. The river that runs through it makes of it, as it were, two regions with distinct physiognomies. All on the left is pasture-land, all on the right arable. The meadow stretches under a bulge of low hills to join at the back with the pasture-land of the Bray country, while on the eastern side the plain, gently rising, broadens out, showing, as far as the eye can follow, its blonde cornfields. The water, flowing by the grass, divides with a white line the colour of the roads and of the plains, and the country is like a great unfolded mantle with a green velvet cape bordered with a fringe of silver. Before us, on the verge of the horizon, lie the oaks of the forest of Argueille, with the steeps of the Saint-Jean hills scarred from top to bottom with red irregular lines. They are rain-tracks, and these brick-tones, standing out in narrow streaks against the grey colour of the mountain, are due to the quantity of iron springs that flow beyond in the neighbouring country. Here we are on the confines of Normandy, Picardy, and the Ile de France, a bastard land whose language is without accent, and its landscape is without character. It is there that they make the worst Neufchatel cheeses of all the arrondissement, and, on the other hand, farming is costly because so much manure is needed to enrich this friable soil full of sand and flints. Up to 1835 there was no practicable road for getting to Yonville, but about this time a crossroad was made which joins that of Abbeville to that of Amiens, and is occasionally used by the Rouen wagoners on their way to Flanders. Yonville l'Abbaye has remained stationary in spite of its new outlet. Instead of improving the soil, they persist in keeping up the pasture lands, however depreciated they may be in value, and the lazy borough, growing away from the plain, has naturally spread riverwards. It is seen from afar sprawling along the banks like a cowherd taking a siesta by the waterside. At the foot of the hill beyond the bridge begins a roadway planted with young aspens that leads in a straight line to the first houses in the place. These, fenced in by hedges, are in the middle of courtyards full of straggling buildings, wine presses, cart sheds and distilleries scattered under thick trees with ladders, poles or scythes hung on to the branches. The thatched roofs, like fur caps drawn over eyes, reach down over about a third of the low windows, whose coarse convex glasses have knots in the middle like the bottoms of bottles. Against the plaster wall, diagonally crossed by black joists, a meagre pear tree sometimes leans, and the ground floors have at their door a small swing-gate to keep out the chicks that come pilfering crumbs of bread steeped in cider on the threshold. But the courtyards grow narrower, the houses closer together, and the fences disappear. A bundle of fern swings under a window from the end of a broomstick. There is a blacksmith's forge, and then a wheelwright's, with two or three new carts outside that partly block the way. 
Then, across an open space, appears a white house beyond a grass mound, ornamented by a cupid, his finger on his lips. Two brass vases are at each end of a flight of steps. Scutcheons blaze upon the door. It is the notary's house, and the finest in the place. The church is on the other side of the street, twenty paces further down, at the entrance of the square. The little cemetery that surrounds it, closed in by a wall breast-high, is so full of graves that the old stones, level with the ground, form a continuous pavement on which the grass of itself has marked out regular green squares. The church was rebuilt during the last years of the reign of Charles X. The wooden roof is beginning to rot from the top, and here and there has black hollows in its blue colour. Over the door where the organ should be is a loft for the men, with a spiral staircase that reverberates under their wooden shoes. The daylight coming through the plain glass windows falls obliquely upon the pews ranged along the walls, which are adorned here and there with a straw mat bearing beneath it the words in large letters, Mr. So-and-so's pew. Farther on, at a spot where the building narrows, the confessional forms a pendant to a statuette of the Virgin, clothed in a satin robe, quaffed with a tall veil sprinkled with silver stars and with red cheeks, like an idol of the Sandwich Islands. And finally, a copy of the Holy Family presented by the Minister of the Interior, overlooking the high altar between four candlesticks, closes in the perspective. The choir stalls of deal wood have been left unpainted. The market, that is to say, a tiled roof supported by some twenty posts, occupies of itself about half the public square of Yonville. The town hall, constructed from the designs of a Paris architect, is a sort of Greek temple that forms the corner next to the chemist's shop. On the ground floor are three ionic columns, and on the first floor a semicircular gallery, while the dome that crowns it is occupied by a Gallic cock, resting one foot upon the chart, and holding in the other the scales of justice. But that which most attracts the eye is opposite the Lion d'Or Inn, the chemist's shop of Monsieur Homais. In the evening, especially, its argand lamp is lit up, and the red and green jars that embellish his shop-front throw far across the street their two streams of colour. Then across them, as if in Bengal lights, is seen the shadow of the chemist leaning over his desk. His house from top to bottom is placarded with inscriptions written in large hand, round hand, printed hand. Vichy, Seltzer, Barrage Waters, Blood Purifiers, Raspai Patent Medicine, Arabian Rakuhu, Dasse Lozenges, Regno Paste, Trusses, Baths, Hygienic Chocolate, etc. And the signboard, which takes up all the breadth of the shop, bears in gold letters, Homay, Chemist. Then, at the back of the shop, behind the great scales fixed to the counter, the word Laboratory, appears on a scroll above a glass door, which about halfway up once more repeats Homay in gold letters on a black ground. Beyond this, there is nothing to see at Yonville. The street, the only one, a gunshot in length, and flanked by a few shops on either side, stops short at the turn of the high road. If it is left on the right hand and the foot of the Saint-Jean hills followed, the cemetery is soon reached. At the time of the cholera, 
in order to enlarge this, a piece of wall was pulled down, and three acres of land by its side purchased. But all the new portion is almost tenantless. The tombs, as heretofore, continue to crowd together towards the gate. The keeper, who is at once gravedigger and church beadle, thus making a double profit out of the parish corpses, has taken advantage of the unused plot of ground to plant potatoes there. From year to year, however, his small field grows smaller, and when there is an epidemic, he does not know whether to rejoice at the deaths or regret the burials. "'You live on the dead, lesti boudoir,' the curé at last said to him one day. This grim remark made him reflect. It checked him for some time. But to this day he carries on the cultivation of his little tubers, and even maintains stoutly that they grow naturally." Since the events about to be narrated, nothing in fact has changed at Yonville. The tin trickler flag still swings at the top of the church steeple, the two chintz streamers still flutter in the wind from the linen drapers, the chemist fetuses, like lumps of white amadou, rot more and more in their turbid alcohol, and above the big door of the inn the old golden lion, faded by rain, still shows passers-by its poodle mane. On the evening, when the Bovaries were to arrive at Yonville, widow Le Francois, the landlady of this inn, was so very busy that she sweated great drops as she moved her saucepans. Tomorrow was market day. The meat had to be cut beforehand, the fowls drawn, the soup and coffee made. Moreover, she had the boarder's meal to see to, and that of the doctor, his wife and their servant. The billiard-room was echoing with bursts of laughter. Three millers in a small parlour were calling for brandy. The wood was blazing, the brazen pan was hissing, and on the long kitchen table, amid the quarters of raw mutton, rose piles of plates that rattled with the shaking of the block on which spinach was being chopped. From the poultry-yard was heard the screaming of the fowls, whom the servant was chasing in order to wring their necks. A man slightly marked with smallpox, in green leather slippers and wearing a velvet cap with a gold tassel, was warming his back at the chimney. His face expressed nothing but self-satisfaction, and he appeared to take life as calmly as the goldfinch suspended over his head in its wicker cage. This was the chemist. Artemis shouted the landlady. "'Chop some wood! Fill the water-bottles! Bring some brandy! Look sharp!' If only I knew what dessert to offer the guests you are expecting. Good heavens, those furniture movers are beginning their racket in the billiard-room again, and their van has been left before the front door. The hirondelle might run into it when it draws up. Call Polite and tell him to put it up. Only think, Monsieur Homais, that since morning they have had about fifteen games and drunk eight jars of cider. While they'll tear my cloth for me, she went on, looking at them from a distance, a strainer in her hand. "'That wouldn't be much of a loss,' replied Monsieur Homais. "'You would buy another.' "'Another billiard-table!' exclaimed the widow. "'Since that one is coming to pieces, Madame Le Francois, "'I tell you again, you are doing yourself harm, much harm. "'And besides, players now want narrow pockets and heavy cues. "'Hazards aren't played now. Everything is changed. "'One must keep pace with the times. Just look at Tellier.' "'The hostess reddened with vexation.' The chemist went on. You may say what you like. His table is better than yours, and if one were to think, for example, of getting up a patriotic pool for Poland or the sufferers from the Lyon floods. 
It isn't beggars like him that'll frighten us, interrupted the landlady, shrugging her fat shoulders. Come, come, Monsieur Homais, as long as the lion door exists, people will come to it. We've feathered our nest, while one of these days you'll find the Café Francois closed with a big placard on the shutters. Change my billiard table, she went on, speaking to herself. The table that comes in so handy for folding the washing, and on which in the hunting season I have slept six visitors. But that dawdler, Hive, doesn't come. Are you waiting for him for your gentleman's dinner? Wait for him? And what about Monsieur Binet? As the clock strikes six, you'll see him come in, for he hasn't his equal under the sun for punctuality. He must always have his seat in the small parlour. He'd rather die than dine anywhere else. And so squeamish as he is, and so particular about the cider. Not like Monsieur Léon. He sometimes comes at seven, or even half-past, and he doesn't so much as look at what he eats. Such a nice young man. Never speaks a rough word." Well, you see, there's a great difference between an educated man and an old carabineer who is now a tax collector. Six o'clock struck. Binet came in. He wore a blue frock coat, falling in a straight line round his thin body, and his leather cap, with its lappets knotted over the top of his head with string, showed under the turned-up peak a bold forehead, flattened by the constant wearing of a helmet. He wore a black cloth waistcoat, a hair-collar, grey trousers, and all the year round well-blacked boots that had two parallel swellings due to the sticking out of his big toes. Not a hair stood out from the regular line of fair whiskers, which, encircling his jaws, framed, after the fashion of a garden border, his long, wan face, whose eyes were small and the nose hooked. Clever at all games of cards, a good hunter, and writing a fine hand, he had at home a lathe, and amused himself by turning napkin rings, with which he filled up his house, with the jealousy of an artist and the egotism of a bourgeois. He went to the small parlour, but the three millers had got out first, and during the whole time necessary for laying the cloth, Binet remained silent in his place near the stove. Then he shut the door and took off his cap in his usual way. "'It isn't with saying civil things that he'll wear out his tongue,' said the chemist, as soon as he was alone with the landlady. "'He never talks more,' she replied. "'Last week two travellers in the cloth line were here, such clever chaps, who told such jokes in the evening that I fairly cried with laughing, and he stood there like a dab fish and never said a word.' "'Yes,' observed the chemist, "'no imagination, no sallies, nothing that makes the society man.' "'Yet they say he has parts,' objected the landlady. "'Parts,' replied Monsieur Homais. "'He! Parts! In his own line it is possible,' he added in a calmer tone. And he went on. "'Ah, that a merchant who has a large connection, a jurisconsult, a doctor, a chemist, should be thus absent-minded that they should become whimsical or even peevish, I can understand. Such cases are cited in history.' but at least it is because they are thinking of something. Myself, for example, how often has it happened to me to look on the bureau for my pen to write a label, and to find, after all, that I had put it behind my ear? Madame Lefrancois just then went to the door to see if the hirondelle were not coming. She started. A man dressed in black suddenly came into the kitchen. By the last gleam of the twilight one could see that his face was rubicund and his form athletic. 
"'What can I do for you, Monsieur le Curé?' asked the landlady, as she reached down from the chimney one of the copper candlesticks placed with their candles in a row. "'Will you take something? A thimble full of cassie? A glass of wine?' The priest declined very politely. He had come for his umbrella that he had forgotten the other day at the Ernemont Convent, and after asking Madame Lefrancois to have it sent to him at the presbytery in the evening, he left for the church, from which the Angelus was ringing. When the chemist no longer heard the noise of his boots along the square, he thought the priest's behaviour just now very unbecoming. This refusal to take any refreshment seemed to him the most odious hypocrisy. All priests tippled on the sly, and were trying to bring back the days of the tithe. The landlady took up the defence of her curé. Besides, he could double up four men like you over his knees. Last year he helped our people to bring in the straw. He carried as many as six trusses at once. He is so strong. Bravo, said the chemist. Now just send your daughters to confess to fellows with such a temperament. Ay, if I were the government, I'd have the priest bled once a month. Yes, Madame Lafrancois, every month. A good phlebotomy in the interests of the police and morals. Be quiet, Monsieur Humay. You are an infidel. You've no religion. The chemist answered, I have a religion, my religion, and I even have more than all these others with their mummeries and their juggling. I adore God, on the contrary. I believe in the Supreme Being, in a Creator, whatever he may be. I care little who has placed us here below to fulfil our duties as citizens and fathers of families, but I don't need to go to church to kiss silver plates and fatten out of my pocket a lot of good-for-nothings who live better than we do. For one can know him as well in a wood, in a field, or even contemplating the eternal vault like the ancients. My God! Mine is the God of Socrates, of Franklin, of Voltaire, and of Beranger. I am for the profession of faith of the Savoyard vicar, and the immortal principles of eighty-nine, and I can't admit of an old boy of a God who takes walks in his garden with a cane in his hand, who lodges his friends in the belly of whales, dies uttering a cry, and rises again at the end of three days, things absurd in themselves, and completely opposed, moreover, to all physical laws, which prove to us, by the way, that priests have always wallowed in turpid ignorance, in which they would fain engulf the people with them. He ceased, looking round for an audience, for, in his bubbling over, the chemist had for a moment fancied himself in the midst of the town council. But the landlady no longer heeded him. She was listening to a distant rolling. One could distinguish the noise of a carriage mingled with the clattering of loose horseshoes that beat against the ground, and at last the hirondelle stopped at the door. It was a yellow box on two large wheels that, reaching to the tilt, prevented travellers from seeing the road and dirtied their shoulders. The small panes of the narrow windows rattled in their sashes when the coach was closed, and retained here and there patches of mud amid the old layers of dust that not even storms of rain had altogether washed away. It was drawn by three horses, the first a leader, and when it came downhill its bottom jolted against the ground. Some of the inhabitants of Yonville came out into the square. They all spoke at once, asking for news, for explanations, for hampers. Hiver did not know whom to answer. It was he who did the errands of the place in town. 
He went to the shops and brought back rolls of leather for the shoemaker, old iron for the farrier, a barrel of herrings for his mistress, caps from the milliners, locks from the hairdressers, and all along the road on his return journey he distributed his parcels, which he threw standing upright on his seat and shouting at the top of his voice over the enclosures of the yards. An accident had delayed him. Madame Bovary's greyhound had run across the field. They had whistled for him a quarter of an hour. Hiver had even gone back a mile and a half, expecting every moment to catch sight of her, but it had been necessary to go on. Emma had wept, grown angry. She had accused Charles of this misfortune. Monsieur Leroux, a draper, who happened to be in the coach with her, had tried to console her by a number of examples of lost dogs recognising their masters at the end of long years. One, he said, had been told of who had come back to Paris from Constantinople. Another had gone 150 miles in a straight line and swum four rivers, and his own father had possessed a poodle which, after twelve years of absence, had all of a sudden jumped on his back in the street as he was going to dine in town. End of part two, chapter one. Part two, chapter two of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. Translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter two. Emma got out first then Felicité, Monsieur Leroux, and a nurse, and they had to wake up Charles in his corner, where he had slept soundly since night set in. Homais introduced himself. He offered his homages to Madame and his respects to Monsieur, said he was charmed to have been able to render them some slight service, and added with a cordial air that he had ventured to invite himself, his wife being away. When Madame Bovary was in the kitchen, she went up to the chimney. With the tips of her fingers she caught her dress at the knee, and having thus pulled it up to her ankle, held out her foot in its black boot to the fire above the revolving leg of mutton. The flame lit up the whole of her, penetrating with a crude light the woof of her gowns, the fine pores of her fair skin, and even her eyelids, which she blinked now and again. A great red glow passed over her with the blowing of the wind through the half-open door. On the other side of the chimney, a young man with fair hair watched her silently. As he was a good deal bored at Yonville, where he was a clerk at the notary's, Monsieur Guillaume, Monsieur Léon Dupuis, it was he who was the second habitué of the lion door, frequently put back his dinner hour and hoped that some traveller might come to the inn with whom he could chat in the evening. On the days when his work was done early, he had, for want of something else to do, to come punctually and endure from soup to cheese a tete-a-tete with Beanet. It was therefore with delight that he accepted the landlady's suggestion that he should dine in company with the newcomers, and they passed into the large parlour where Madame Lefrancois, for the purpose of showing off, had had the table laid for four. Homais asked to be allowed to keep on his skull-cap for fear of Carissa, then, turning to his neighbour, Madame is no doubt a little fatigued. One gets jolted so abominably in our hirondelle. That is true, replied Emma, but moving about always amuses me. I like change of place. 
It is so tedious, sighed the clerk, to be always riveted to the same places. If you were like me, said Charles, constantly obliged to be in the saddle. But, Léon went on, addressing himself to Madame Bovary, nothing, it seems to me, is more pleasant when one can, he added. Moreover, said the druggist, the practice of medicine is not very hard work in our part of the world, for the state of our roads allows us the use of gigs, and generally, as the farmers are prosperous, they pay pretty well. We have, medically speaking, besides the ordinary cases of enteritis, bronchitis, bilious affections, etc., now and then a few intermittent fevers at harvest time, but on the whole little of a serious nature, nothing special to note, unless it be a great deal of scrofula, due no doubt to the deplorable hygienic conditions of our peasant dwellings. Ah, you will find many prejudices to combat, Monsieur Bovary, much obstinacy of routine, with which all the efforts of your science will daily come into collision, for people still have recourse to novenas, to relics, to the priest, rather than come straight to the doctor or the chemist. The climate, however, is not, truth to tell, bad, and we even have a few nonagenarians in our parish. The thermometer... I have made some observations, falls in winter to four degrees centigrade at the outside, which gives us twenty-four degrees reoma as the maximum, or otherwise fifty-four degrees Fahrenheit, English scale, not more. And as a matter of fact, we are sheltered from the north winds by the forest of Agay on the one side, from the west winds by the Saint-Jean range on the other. And this heat, moreover, which, on account of the aqueous vapours given off by the river, and the considerable number of cattle in the fields, which, as you know, exhale much ammonia, that is to say, nitrogen, hydrogen and oxygen, no, nitrogen and hydrogen alone, and which, sucking up into itself the humus from the ground, mixing together all those different emanations, unites them into a stack, so to say, and combining with the electricity diffused through the atmosphere, when there is any, might in the long run, as in tropical countries, engender insalubrious miasmata. This heat, I say, finds itself perfectly tempered on the side whence it comes, or rather whence it should come that is to say, the southern side, by the southeastern winds, which, having cooled themselves passing over the Seine, reach us sometimes all at once, like breezes from Russia. At any rate, you have some walks in the neighbourhood, continued Madame Bovary, speaking to the young man. Oh, very few, he answered. There is a place they call La Pâture on the top of the hill, on the edge of the forest. Sometimes on Sundays I go and stay there with a book, watching the sunset. I think there is nothing so admirable as sunsets, she resumed, but especially by the side of the sea. Oh, I adore the sea, said Monsieur Léon. And then does it not seem to you, continued Madame Bovary, that the mind travels more freely on this limitless expanse, the contemplation of which elevates the soul, gives ideas of the infinite, the ideal? It is the same with mountainous landscapes, continued Léon. A cousin of mine who travelled in Switzerland last year told me that one could not picture to oneself the poetry of the lakes, the charm of the waterfalls, the gigantic effect of the glaciers. One sees pines of incredible size across torrents, cottages suspended over precipices, and a thousand feet below one whole valleys when the clouds open. 
Such spectacles must stir to enthusiasm, incline to prayer, to ecstasy. And I no longer marvel at that celebrated musician who, the better to inspire his imagination, was in the habit of playing the piano before some imposing sight. You play? she asked. No, but I am very fond of music, he replied. Ah, don't you listen to him, Madame Bovary, interrupted Homais, bending over his plate. That's sheer modesty. Why, my dear fellow, the other day in your room you were singing L'Ange Gardienne ravishingly. I heard you from the laboratory. You gave it like an actor. Léon, in fact, lodged at the chemist's where he had a small room on the second floor, overlooking the place. He blushed at the compliment of his landlord, who had already turned to the doctor, and was enumerating to him, one after the other, all the principal inhabitants of Yonville. He was telling anecdotes, giving information. The fortune of the notary was not known exactly, and there was the Tuvache household, who made a good deal of show. Emma continued, and what music do you prefer? Oh, German music, that which makes you dream. Have you been to the opera? Not yet, but I shall go next year when I am living at Paris to finish reading for the bar. As I had the honour of putting it to your husband, said the chemist, with regard to this poor Yanoda who has run away, you will find yourself, thanks to his extravagance, in the possession of one of the most comfortable houses of Yonville. Its greatest convenience for a doctor is a door giving on the walk, where one can go in and out unseen. Moreover, it contains everything that is agreeable in a household. A laundry, kitchen with offices, sitting room, fruit room, and so on. He was a gay dog, who didn't care what he spent. At the end of the garden, by the side of the water, he had an arbour built just for the purpose of drinking beer in summer. And if Madame is fond of gardening, she will be able... My wife doesn't care about it, said Charles. Although she has been advised to take exercise, she prefers always sitting in her room, reading. Like me, replied Léon. And indeed, what is better than to sit by one's fireside in the evening with a book? while the wind beats against the windows and the lamp is burning. What indeed, she said, fixing her large black eyes wide upon him. One thinks of nothing, he continued. The hours slip by. Motionless we traverse countries we fancy we see, and your thoughts, blending with the fiction, playing with the details, follow the outlines of the adventures, it mingles with the characters, and it seems as if it were yourself palpitating beneath their costumes. That is true, that is true, she said. Has it ever happened to you, Leon went on, to come across some vague idea of one's own in a book, some dim image that comes back to you from afar, and as the completest expression of your own slightest sentiment? I have experienced it, she replied. That is why, he said, I especially love the poets. I think verse more tender than prose, and that it moves far more easily to tears. Still, in the long run it is tiring, continued Emma. Now, I, on the contrary, adore stories that rush breathlessly along, that frighten one. I detest commonplace heroes and moderate sentiments such as there are in nature. In fact, observed the clerk, these works not touching the heart miss, it seems to me, the true end of art. 
It is so sweet amid all the disenchantments of life to be able to dwell in thought upon noble characters, pure affections, and pictures of happiness. For myself, living here far from the world, this is my one distraction, but Yonville affords so few resources. Like Tostes, no doubt, replied Emma, and so I always subscribe to a lending library. If Madame will do me the honour of making use of it, said the chemist, who had just caught the last words, I have at her disposal a library composed of the best authors, Voltaire, Rousseau, Delia, Walter Scott, the Echo des Feuilletons, and in addition I receive various periodicals, among them the Fanal de Rouen, daily, having the advantage to be its correspondent for the districts of Bouchy, Vosges, Neuchâtel, Yonville, and vicinity. For two hours and a half they had been at table, for the servant Artemis, carelessly dragging her old list slippers over the flags, brought one plate after the other, forgot everything, and constantly left the door of the billiard-room half open, so that it beat against the wall with its hooks. Unconsciously, Léon, while talking, had placed his foot on one of the bars of the chair on which Madame Bovary was sitting. She wore a small blue necktie that kept up like a rough, a gorford cambric collar, and with the movements of her hands the lower part of her face gently sunk into the linen, or came out from it. Thus, side by side, while Charles and the chemist chatted, they entered into one of those vague conversations where the hazards of all that is said brings you back to the fixed centre of a common sympathy. The Paris theatres, titles of novels, new quadrilles, and the world they did not know. Tostes, where she had lived, and Yonville, where they were, they examined all, talked of everything, till the end of dinner. When coffee was served, Felicite went away to get ready the room in the new house, and the guests soon raised the siege. Madame Lefrancois was asleep near the cinders, while the stable boy, lantern in hand, was waiting to show Monsieur and Madame Bovary the way home. Bits of straw stuck in his red hair, and he limped with his left leg. When he had taken in his other hand the curé's umbrella, they started. The town was asleep. The pillars of the market threw great shadows. The earth was all grey as on a summer's night. But as the doctor's house was only some fifty paces from the inn, they had to say good night almost immediately, and the company dispersed. As soon as she entered the passage, Emma felt the cold of the plaster fall about her shoulders like damp linen. The walls were new and the wooden stairs creaked. In their bedroom on the first floor, a whitish light passed through the curtainless windows. She could catch glimpses of treetops and beyond the fields, half drowned in the fog that lay reeking in the moonlight along the course of the river. In the middle of the room, pell-mell, were scattered drawers, bottles, curtain-rods, gilt poles, with mattresses on the chairs and basins on the ground. The two men who had brought the furniture had left everything about carelessly. This was the fourth time that she had slept in a strange place. The first was the day of her going to the convent, the second of her arrival at Tostes, the third at Vaubeyessard, and this was the fourth and each one had marked, as it were, the inauguration of a new phase of her life. 
She did not believe that things could present themselves in the same way in different places, and since the portion of her life lived had been bad, no doubt that which remained to be lived would be better. End of part two, chapter two. Part two, chapter three of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter three. The next day, as she was getting up, she saw the clerk on the place. She had on a dressing gown. He looked up and bowed. She nodded quickly and reclosed the window. Léon waited all day for six o'clock in the evening to come, but on going to the inn he found no one but Monsieur Binet already at table. The dinner of the evening before had been a considerable event for him. He had never till then talked for two hours consecutively to a lady. How then had he been able to explain, and in such language, the number of things that he could not have said so well before? He was usually shy, and maintained that reserve which partakes at once of modesty and dissimulation. At Yonville he was considered well-bred. He listened to the arguments of the older people, and did not seem hot about politics, a remarkable thing for a young man. Then he had some accomplishments. He painted in watercolours, he could read the key of G, and readily talked literature after dinner when he did not play cards. Monsieur Homais respected him for his education. Madame Homais liked him for his good nature, for he often took the little Homais into the garden, little brats who were always dirty, very much spoilt and somewhat lymphatic like their mother. Besides the servant to look after them, they had Justin, the chemist's apprentice, a second cousin of Monsieur Homais, who had been taken into the house from charity, and who was useful at the same time as a servant. The druggist proved the best of neighbours. He gave Madame Bovary information as to the tradespeople, sent expressly for his own cider merchant, tasted the drink himself, and saw that the casks were properly placed in the cellar. He explained how to set about getting in a supply of butter cheap, and made an arrangement with Lestiboudois, the sacristan, who, besides his sacerdotal and funeral functions, looked after the principal gardens at Yonville by the hour or the year according to the taste of the customers. The need of looking after others was not the only thing that urged the chemist to such obsequious cordiality. There was a plan underneath it all. He had infringed the law of the 19th Ventos, Year 11, Article 1, which forbade all persons not having a diploma to practice medicine. So that, after certain anonymous denunciations, Homais had been summoned to Rouen to see the procureur of the king in his own private room, the magistrate receiving him standing up, ermine on shoulders and cap on head. It was in the morning, before the court opened. In the corridors one heard the heavy boots of the gendarmes walking past, and like a far-off noise great locks that were shut. The druggist's ears tingled as if he were about to have an apoplectic stroke. He saw the depths of dungeons, his family in tears, his shop sold, all the jars dispersed, and he was obliged to enter a cafe and take a glass of rum and seltzer to recover his spirits. 
Little by little the memory of this reprimand grew fainter, and he continued, as heretofore, to give anodyne consultations in his back parlour. But the mayor resented it. His colleagues were jealous. Everything was to be feared. Gaining over Monsieur Bovary by his attentions was to earn his gratitude and prevent his speaking out later on, should he notice anything. So, every morning, Homais brought him the paper, and often in the afternoon left his shops for a few moments to have a chat with the doctor. Charles was dull. Patience did not come. He remained seated for hours without speaking, went into his consulting room to sleep, or watched his wife sewing. Then, for diversion, he employed himself at home as a workman. He even tried to do up the attic with some paint which had been left behind by the painters. But money matters worried him. He had spent so much for repairs at Tostes, for Madame's toilette and for the moving, that the whole dowry, over three thousand crowns, had slipped away in two years. Then how many things had been spoilt or lost during their carriage from Tostes to Yonville, without counting the plaster curé, who, falling out of the coach at an over-severe jolt, had been dashed into a thousand fragments on the pavements of Cancampoir. A pleasanter trouble came to distract him, namely, the pregnancy of his wife. As the time of her confinement approached, he cherished her the more. It was another bond of the flesh establishing itself, and, as it were, a continued sentiment of a more complex union. When from afar he saw her languid walk and her figure without stays turning softly on her hips, when opposite one another he looked at her at his ease while she took tired poses in her armchair, then his happiness knew no bounds. He got up, embraced her passed his hands over her face, called her little mamma, wanted to make her dance, and, half laughing, half crying, uttered all kinds of caressing pleasantries that came into his head. The idea of having begotten a child delighted him. Now he wanted nothing. He knew human life from end to end, and he sat down to it with serenity. Emma at first felt a great astonishment then was anxious to be delivered that she might know what it was to be a mother. But not being able to spend as much as she would have liked to have a swing bassinet with rose silk curtains and embroidered caps, in a fit of bitterness she gave up looking after the trousseau and ordered the whole of it from a village needlewoman without choosing or discussing anything. Thus she did not amuse herself with those preparations that stimulate the tenderness of mothers, and so her affection was from the very outset, perhaps, to some extent, attenuated. As Charles, however, spoke of the boy at every meal, she soon began to think of him more consecutively. She hoped for a son. He would be strong and dark. She would call him George, and this idea of having a male child was like an expected revenge for all her impotence in the past. A man, at least, is free. He may travel over passions and over countries, overcome obstacles, taste of the most far-away pleasures. But a woman is always hampered. At once inert and flexible, she has against her the weakness of the flesh and legal dependence. 
her will, like the veil of her bonnet held by a string, flutters in every wind. There is always some desire that draws her, some conventionality that restrains. She was confined on a Sunday about six o'clock, as the sun was rising. It is a girl, said Charles. She turned her head away and fainted. Madame Homais, as well as Madame Le Francois of the Lion d'Or, almost immediately came running in to embrace her. The chemist, as man of discretion, only offered a few provincial felicitations through the half-opened door. He wished to see the child, and thought it well made. Whilst she was getting well, she occupied herself much in seeking a name for her daughter. First she went over all those that have Italian endings, such as Clara, Luisa, Amanda, Atala. She liked Galswinde pretty well, and Isolt or Leocardi still better. Charles wanted the child to be called after her mother. Emma opposed this. They ran over the calendar from end to end, and then consulted outsiders. Monsieur Léon, said the chemist, with whom I was talking about it the other day, wonders you do not choose Madeleine. It is very much in fashion just now. But Madame Bovary Senior cried out loudly against this name of a sinner. As to Monsieur Homais, he had a preference for all those that recalled some great man, an illustrious fact, or a generous idea, and it was on this system that he had baptised his four children. Thus, Napoleon represented glory, and Franklin, liberty. Irma was, perhaps, a concession to Romanticism, but Atelier was a homage to the greatest masterpiece of the French stage. For his philosophical convictions did not interfere with his artistic tastes. In him the thinker did not stifle the man of sentiment. He could make distinctions, make allowances for imagination and fanaticism. In this tragedy, for example, he found fault with the ideas, but admired the style. He detested the conception, but applauded all the details, and loathed the characters while he grew enthusiastic over their dialogue. When he read the fine passages, he was transported, but when he thought that mummers would get something out of them for their show, he was disconsolate and in this confusion of sentiments in which he was involved, he would have liked at once to crown Racine with both his hands and discuss with him for a good quarter of an hour. At last Emma remembered that at the Chateau of Vaubaisard she had heard the Marchioness call a young lady Berta, and from that moment this name was chosen, and as old Rouault could not come, Monsieur Homais was requested to stand godfather. His gifts were all products from his establishment, to wit, six boxes of jujubes, a whole jar of rakahu, three cakes of marshmallow paste, and six sticks of sugar candy into the bargain that he had come across in a cupboard. On the evening of the ceremony there was a grand dinner. The curé was present. There was much excitement. Monsieur Hamet, towards liqueur time, began singing Le Dieu des Bons Gens, Monsieur Léon sang a baccarole, and Madame Bovary Senior, who was godmother, a romance of the time of the empire. Finally, Monsieur Bovary Senior insisted on having the child brought down, and began baptising it with a glass of champagne that he poured over its head. This mockery of the first of the sacraments made the Abbe Bonissien angry, 
Old Bovary replied by a quotation from La Guerre des Dieux. The curé wanted to leave. The ladies implored. Homais interfered, and they succeeded in making the priest sit down again, and he quietly went on with the half-finished coffee in his saucer. Monsieur Bovary, senior, stayed at Yonville a month, dazzling the natives by a superb policeman's cap with silver tassels that he wore in the morning when he smoked his pipe in the square. Being also in the habit of drinking a good deal of brandy, he often sent the servant to the lion door to buy him a bottle which was put down to his son's account, and to perfume his handkerchiefs he used up his daughter-in-law's whole supply of eau de cologne. The latter did not at all dislike his company. He had knocked about the world. He talked about Berlin, Vienna and Strasbourg, of his soldier times, of the mistresses he had had, the grand luncheons of which he had partaken. Then he was amiable, and sometimes, even either on the stairs or in the garden, would seize hold of her waist, crying, Charles, look out for yourself! Then Madame Bovary Senior became alarmed for her son's happiness, and fearing that her husband might in the long run have an immoral influence upon the ideas of the young woman, took care to hurry their departure. Perhaps she had more serious reasons for uneasiness. Monsieur Bovary was not the man to respect anything. One day, Emma was suddenly seized with the desire to see her little girl, who had been put to nurse with the carpenter's wife, and without looking at the calendar to see whether the six weeks of the Virgin were yet passed, she set out for the Rollet's house, situated at the extreme end of the village, between the high road and the fields. It was midday. The shutters of the house were closed, and the slate roofs that glittered beneath the fierce light of the blue sky seemed to strike sparks from the crest of the gables. A heavy wind was blowing. Emma felt weak as she walked. The stones of the pavement hurt her. She was doubtful whether she would not go home again or go in somewhere to rest. At this moment, Monsieur Léon came out from a neighbouring door with a bundle of papers under his arm. He came to greet her and stood in the shade in front of Lheureux's shop under the projecting grey awning. Madame Bovary said she was going to see her baby, but that she was beginning to grow tired. If, said Léon, not daring to go on. Have you any business to attend to, she asked. And on the clerk's answer, she begged him to accompany her. That same evening this was known in Yonville, and Madame Tuvache, the mayor's wife, declared in the presence of her servant that Madame Bovary was compromising herself. To get to the nurses it was necessary to turn to the left on leaving the street, as if making for the cemetery, and to follow between little houses and yards a small path bordered with privet hedges. They were in bloom, and so were the speedwells, eglantines, thistles, and the sweet briar that sprang up from the thickets. Through openings in the hedges one could see into the huts, some pigs on a dung heap, or tethered cows rubbing their horns against the trunk of trees. The two, side by side, walked slowly, she leaning upon him, and he restraining his pace, which he regulated by hers. In front of them a swarm of midges fluttered, buzzing in the warm air. They recognised the house by an old walnut tree which shaded it. Low and covered with brown tiles, there hung outside it, beneath the dormer window of the garret, 
a string of onions. Faggots, upright against a thorn fence, surrounded a bed of lettuce, a few square feet of lavender, and sweet peas strung on sticks. Dirty water was running here and there on the grass, and all round were several indefinite rags, knitted stockings, a red calico jacket, and a large sheet of coarse linen spread over the hedge. At the noise of the gate, the nurse appeared with a baby she was suckling on one arm. With her other hand, she was pulling along a poor, puny little fellow, his face covered with scrofula, the son of a Rouen hosier, whom his parents, too taken up with their business, left in the country. Go in, she said, your little one is there asleep. The room on the ground floor, the only one in the dwelling, had at its farther end, against the wall, a large bed without curtains, while a kneading trough took up the side by the window, one pane of which was mended with a piece of blue paper. In the corner behind the door, shining hobnailed boots stood in a row under the slab of the washstand, near a bottle of oil with a feather stuck in its mouth. A Mathieu Lainsberg lay on the dusty mantelpiece amid gunflints, candle ends, and bits of amadou. Finally, the last luxury in the apartment was a fame blowing her trumpets, a picture cut out, no doubt, from some perfumer's prospectus, and nailed to the wall with six wooden shoe pegs. Emma's child was asleep in a wicker cradle. She took it up in the wrapping that enveloped it, and began singing softly as she rocked herself to and fro. Léon walked up and down the room. It seemed strange to him to see this beautiful woman in her nankeen dress in the midst of all this poverty. Madame Bovary reddened. He turned away, thinking perhaps there had been an impertinent look in his eyes. Then he put back the little girl, who had just been sick over her collar. The nurse at once came to dry her, protesting that it wouldn't show. "'She gives me other doses,' she said. "'I'm always a-washing of her. "'If you would have the goodness to order Camus the grocer "'to let me have a little soap, "'it would really be more convenient for you, "'as I needn't trouble you then.' "'Very well, very well,' said Emma. "'Good morning, Madame Rollet.' "'And she went out, wiping her shoes at the door.' The good woman accompanied her to the end of the garden, talking all the time of the trouble she had getting up of nights. I'm that worn out sometimes as I drop asleep on my chair. I'm sure you might at least give me just a pound of ground coffee. That'd last me a month and I'd take it of a morning with some milk. After having submitted to her thanks, Madame Bovary left. She had gone a little way down the path when, at the sound of wooden shoes, she turned round. It was the nurse. What is it? Then the peasant woman, taking her aside behind an elm tree, began talking to her of her husband, who, with his trade and six francs a year, that the captain... I'll be quick, said Emma. Well, the nurse went on, heaving sighs between each word. I'm afraid he'll be put out, seeing me have coffee alone. You know, men. But you are to have some, Emma repeated. I will give you some. You bother me. Ah, oh, dear, my poor dear lady. You see, in consequence of his wounds, he has terrible cramps in the chest. He even says that cider weakens him. Do make haste, Mère Rollet. Well, the latter continued, making a curtsy, if it weren't asking too much. And she curtsied once more. If you would, and her eyes begged, a jar of brandy. 
she said at last, and I'd rub your little one's feet with it. They're as tender as one's tongue. Once rid of the nurse, Emma again took Monsieur Léon's arm. She walked fast for some time, then more slowly, and looking straight in front of her, her eyes rested on the shoulder of the young man whose frock coat had a black velvety collar. His brown hair fell over it, straight and carefully arranged. She noticed his nails, which were longer than one wore them at Yonville. It was one of the clerk's chief occupations to trim them, and for this purpose he kept a special knife in his writing desk. They returned to Yonville by the waterside. In the warm season, the bank, wider than at other times, showed to their foot the garden walls whence a few steps led to the river. It flowed noiselessly, swift and cold to the eye. Long, thin grasses huddled together in it as the current drove them and spread themselves upon the limpid water like streaming hair. Sometimes at the tip of the reeds or on the leaf of a water lily an insect with fine legs crawled or rested. The sun pierced with a ray the small blue bubbles of the waves that, breaking, followed each other. Branchless old willows mirrored their grey backs in the water. Beyond, all around, the meadows seemed empty. It was the dinner hour at the farms, and the young woman and her companion heard nothing as they walked but the fall of their steps on the earth of the path, the words they spoke, and the sound of Emma's dress rustling round her. The walls of the gardens with pieces of bottle on their coping were hot as the glass windows of a conservatory. Wallflowers had sprung up between the bricks, and with the tip of her open sunshade, Madame Bovary, as she passed, made some of their faded flowers crumble into a yellow dust, or a spray of overhanging honeysuckle and clematis caught in its fringe and dangled for a moment over the silk. They were talking of a troupe of Spanish dancers who were expected shortly at the Rouen Theatre. "'Are you going?' she asked. "'If I can,' he answered." Had they nothing else to say to one another? Yet their eyes were full of more serious speech, and while they forced themselves to find trivial phrases, they felt the same languor stealing over both them. It was the whisper of the soul, deep, continuous, dominating that of their voices. Surprised with wonder at this strange sweetness, they did not think of speaking of the sensation or of seeking its cause. Coming joys like tropical shores throw over the immensity before them their inborn softness, an odorous wind, and we are lulled by this intoxication without a thought of the horizon that we do not even know. In one place the ground had been trodden down by the cattle. They had to step on large green stones put here and there in the mud. She often stopped a moment to look where to place her foot, and tottering on a stone that shook, her arms outspread, her form bent forward with a look of indecision, she would laugh, afraid of falling into the puddles of water. When they arrived in front of her garden, Madame Bovary opened the little gate, ran up the steps, and disappeared. Léon returned to his office. His chief was away. He just glanced at the briefs, then cut himself a pen, and at last took up his hat and went out. He went to La Pâture at the top of the Argaille hills at the beginning of the forest. He threw himself upon the ground under the pines and watched the sky through his fingers. How bored I am, he said to himself. 
how bored I am. He thought he was to be pitied for living in this village, with Homais for a friend and Monsieur Guillaumin for master. The latter, entirely absorbed by his business, wearing gold-rimmed spectacles and red whiskers over a white cravat, understood nothing of mental refinements, although he affected a stiff English manner which in the beginning had impressed the clerk. As to the chemist's spouse, she was the best wife in Normandy, gentle as a sheep, loving her children, her father, her mother, her cousins, weeping for others' woes, letting everything go in her household and detesting corsets. But so slow of movement, such a bore to listen to, so common in appearance, and of such restricted conversation, that although she was thirty, he only twenty, although they slept in rooms next to each other and he spoke to her daily, he never thought that she might be a woman for another or that she possessed anything else of her sex than the gown. And what else was there? Binet, a few shopkeepers, two or three publicans, the curé, and finally Monsieur Tuvache, the mayor, with his two sons, rich, crabbed, obtuse persons who farmed their own lands and had feasts among themselves, bigoted to boot and quite unbearable companions but from the general background of all these human faces, Emma's stood out isolated and yet farthest off, for between her and him he seemed to see a vague abyss. In the beginning he had called on her several times along with the druggist. Charles had not appeared particularly anxious to see him again, and Léon did not know what to do between his fear of being indiscreet and the desire for an intimacy that seemed almost impossible. End of part two, chapter three. Part two, chapter four of Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert, translated by Eleanor Mark Saverling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part two, chapter four. When the first cold day set in, Emma left her bedroom for the sitting-room, a long apartment with a low ceiling, in which there was, on the mantelpiece, a large bunch of coral spread out against the looking-glass. Seated in her armchair near the window, she could see the villagers pass along the pavement. Twice a day, Léon went from his office to the lion door. Emma could hear him coming from afar. She leant forward, listening, and the young man glided past the curtain, always dressed in the same way and without turning his head. But in the twilight, when, her chin resting on her left hand, she let the embroidery she had begun fall on her knees, she often shuddered at the apparition of this shadow suddenly gliding past. She would get up and order the table to be laid. Monsieur Homais called at dinner-time. Skull-cap in hand, he came in on tiptoe in order to disturb no one, always repeating the same phrase, "'Good evening, everybody!' Then, when he had taken his seat at the table between the pair, he asked the doctor about his patients, and the latter consulted his as to the probability of their payment. Next they talked of what was in the paper. Homais by this hour knew it almost by heart, and he repeated it from end to end, with the reflections of the pennier liners and all the stories of individual catastrophes that had occurred in France or abroad. 
but the subject becoming exhausted, he was not slow in throwing out some remarks on the dishes before him. Sometimes even, half rising, he delicately pointed out to Madame the tenderest morsel, or, turning to the servant, gave her some advice on the manipulation of stews and the hygiene of seasoning. He talked aroma, osmazome, juices and gelatine in a bewildering manner. Moreover, Homais, with his head fuller of recipes than his shop of jars, excelled in making all kinds of preserves, vinegars and sweet liqueurs. He knew also all the latest inventions in economic stoves, together with the art of preserving cheese and of curing sick wines. At eight o'clock, Justin came to fetch him to shut up the shop. Then Monsieur Homais gave him a sly look, especially if Felicite was there, for he half noticed that his apprentice was fond of the doctor's house. The young dog, he said, is beginning to have ideas, and the devil take me if I don't believe he's in love with your servant. But a more serious fault with which he reproached Justin was his constantly listening to conversation. On Sunday, for example, one could not get him out of the drawing-room, whither Mrs. Homais had called him to fetch the children, who were falling asleep in the armchairs and dragging down with their backs calico chair covers that were too large. Not many people came to these soirees at the chemist's, his scandal-mongering and political opinions having successfully alienated various respectable persons from him. The clerk never failed to be there. As soon as he heard the bell, he ran to meet Madame Bovary, took her shawl, and put away under the shop-counter the thick list shoes that she wore over her boots when there was snow. First they played some hands at Trente-et-un. Next, Monsieur Homais played a cart with Emma. Léon, behind her, gave her advice. Standing up with his hands on the back of her chair, he saw the teeth of her comb that bit into her chignon. With every movement that she made to throw her cards, the right side of her dress was drawn up. From her turned-up hair, a dark colour fell over her back, and growing gradually paler, lost itself little by little in the shade. Then her dress fell on both sides of her chair, puffing out full of folds, and reached the ground. When Léon occasionally felt the sole of his boot resting on it, he drew back as if he had trodden upon someone. When the game of cards was over, the druggist and the doctor played dominoes, and Emma, changing her place, leant her elbow on the table, turning over the leaves of l'illustration. She had brought her lady's journal with her. Léon sat down near her. They looked at the engravings together, and waited for one another at the bottom of the pages. She often begged him to read her the verses. Léon declaimed them in a languid voice, to which he carefully gave a dying fall in the love passages. But the noise of the dominoes annoyed him. Monsieur Homais was strong at the game. He could beat Charles and give him a double six. Then the three hundred finished. They both stretched themselves out in front of the fire, and were soon asleep. The fire was dying out in the cinders, the teapot was empty, Léon was still reading. Emma listened to him, mechanically turning around the lampshade, on the gauze of which were painted clowns in carriages and tightrope dancers with their balancing poles. Léon stopped, pointing with a gesture to his sleeping audience. Then they talked in low tones, and their conversation seemed the more sweet to them because it was unheard. 
Thus a kind of bond was established between them, a constant commerce of books and of romances. Monsieur Bovary, little given to jealousy, did not trouble himself about it. On his birthday he received a beautiful phrenological head, all marked with figures to the thorax and painted blue. This was an attention of the clerks. He showed him many others, even to doing errands for him at Rouen, and the book of a novelist having made the mania for cactuses fashionable, Léon bought some for Madame Bovary, bringing them back on his knees in the hirondelle, pricking his fingers on their hard hairs. She had a board with a balustrade fixed against her window to hold the pots. The clerk, too, had his small hanging garden. They saw each other tending their flowers at their windows. Of the windows of the village there was one yet more often occupied, for on Sundays from morning to night, and every morning when the weather was bright, one could see at the dormer window of the garret the profile of Monsieur Benet bending over his lathe, whose monotonous humming could be heard at the lion door. One evening, on coming home, Léon found in his room a rug, in velvet and wool, with leaves on a pale ground. He called Madame Homais, Monsieur Homais, Justin, the children, the cook. He spoke of it to his chief. Everyone wanted to see this rug. Why did the doctor's wife give the clerk presents? It looked queer. They decided that she must be his lover. He made this seem likely. So ceaselessly did he talk of her charms and of her wit, so much so that Binet once roughly answered him, What does it matter to me, since I'm not in her set? He tortured himself to find out how he could make his declaration to her and always halting between the fear of displeasing her and the shame of being such a coward, he wept with discouragement and desire. Then he took energetic resolutions, wrote letters that he tore off, put it off to times that he again deferred. Often he set out with the determination to dare all, but this resolution soon deserted him in Emma's presence, and when Charles, dropping in, invited him to jump into his chaise to go with him to see some patient in the neighbourhood, he at once accepted, bowed to Madame, and went out. Her husband, was he not something belonging to her? As to Emma, she did not ask herself whether she loved. Love, she thought, must come suddenly with great outbursts and lightnings, a hurricane of the skies which falls upon life, revolutionises it, roots up the will like a leaf, and sweeps the whole heart into the abyss. She did not know that on the terrace of houses it makes lakes when the pipes are choked, and she would thus have remained in her security when she suddenly discovered a rent in the wall of it. End of part two, chapter four. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.